So I'm just curious, have you ever longed for divine immunity from life? <laughs> you know, people are always taking precautions to avoid the calamities of life. Things like burglar alarms, right? Locks on doors, eating healthy foods. So what are you trying to prevent? You're trying to prevent loss or break-ins or mean people who want to come in and do you harm. We eat healthy foods, exercise regularly. What's that? We want to avoid sickness and illness. Illness, you know that, illness. We want to uh, avoid um, sickness and disease. And, you know, I don't know about you, but if someone has a cold and we're like, oh, oh, cold, 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 you know? Where's my, you know, I don't know, immunity spray, you know? And we're spraying ourselves with, you know, I have a friend that's like, I just cover myself in lemongrass oil whenever anyone is sick around me. You're like, and has it helped you? It's just like, well, not yet, but any day now, you know? But we want these divine immunities. We, 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 we get our cars tuned up because we, have, we hate breakdowns. We wear our seat belts. We drive defensively. We have savings accounts. Or if you're like me, we have secret savings accounts. We want to avoid loss of property, violation of property, bad health, pain, accidents. We want to secure ourselves and our future financially. You know, and I notice that often we want to distance ourselves from the trials of life. And we do this by assigning blame to either the, the person suffering, like, you got that cold because you were on an airplane, huh? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just sitting with all those people on the airplane and it was recirculated air. Nope, I'm not flying. Mm-mm, I'm not going to take a chance with flying. Or we say, you know, they had brain cancer. They must have used a cell phone. Or, you know, they're sick because they didn't do alkaline water. We have all these assignments of blame because we want to distance ourselves from the issue. When my father had the lung cancer, we literally had a pile two feet high with um, advice from people of how to get over lung cancer. You know, and there were all these remedies. I even had a young woman come to the, the church and she said to me, you know, your father needs to do this. And I said, well, he's got one of those things, but he's not doing it. You know, my dad was the strongest force next to God in my life and Brian. I mean, you did not tell Chuck what to do or my father what to do. You might suggest something. And if you suggested, he was like, ho, 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 ho. he thought it was cute, you know, like, ho, 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 ho. and so this girl's like, you need to make your father do this. And I'm like, I can't make my dad do anything. I suggest I can love him, but I can't force him to do anything. And I, I remember she got so irate with me that the woman that she was with, you know, my dad was, you know, sick. And now she's putting these burdens on me that you need to do this and, and, and turn that relationship of love into this, you know, dad, you gotta do this now. You know, I'm not gonna do that. I don't know how long I have with him. And as I was trying to explain this to her, I mean, she almost threw a punch at me. It was like that extreme where I just, had to t- I just had to walk away. But you know what that is? It's trying to assign blame. Your father would be well if you would only do this. And he's sick because he didn't do this. You know, this is what Job's friends did, didn't they? 
They looked at Job and they said, you know what? They're looking at Job, they're crying and they're miserable before him, but then they begin to want to find a cause for why he was suffering. Like Job, you must have been mean to a widow. You must have stolen. We just didn't see it happen. And Job is looking at them and saying, I didn't do any of those things. God brought this on me and I don't know why. And they're like, "Mm -mm -mm -mm." God doesn't bring bad things on good people. You must have done something. And then they wanted to talk about how good they were. And that's why they weren't suffering. Oh, we want divine immunity. We want distance. Um, And sometimes we distance ourselves by avoidance. We don't get checkups because we just don't want to know. Or we isolate ourselves from, you know, people and germs. Or we try to insulate ourselves. It would be so nice if we could escape all the mishaps of life, wouldn't it? It would be so nice if we would wake up and our hair would always look great. That didn't happen to me this morning, so I've got this strange hairstyle. It would be so great if we could eat all the buttery cookies we wanted with no weight gain, no additions to our cholesterol, no inflammation to our system. It would be wonderful if people were always nice. Would it be just wonderful if everyone was nice? Just nice. A friend of mine said she was, she was looking at her cell phone. She had it, but she was driving defensively. And this man just started screaming at her when they were pulled up at a light, just screaming at her with his windows down, just screaming. He wasn't nice. Wouldn't it be great if the sun didn't cause wrinkles, burns, or skin cancer? Wouldn't it be great if good people always won and bad people always lost? If grumpy people always had bad days and nice people always had good days? If every light on the road turned green right when you pulled up to that, that signal and nothing bad ever happened to Christians, but that's not the reality, is it? Suffering is universal to believers and unbelievers. Suffering is universal to the morally upright and the morally bankrupt. Suffering happens to careful people and careless people. Suffering happens to the strong and to the weak, to the rich and to the poor. And everyone will suffer at some time in their lives. Everyone But though suffering is universal, its effects for believers can actually be productive rather than destructive. And a believer is someone who has the kingdom of God ruling in their lives. What is the kingdom of God? This term, this phrase, is used over 90 times in the New Testament. Angie shared in our group leader meeting that it's used over 33 times in just the gospel of Luke alone. And Jesus was saying over and over again that he came to bring the kingdom of God to men. When he sent the disciples out, he said, tell the people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God will eventually rule the entire world. But when Jesus came, The first time he came to bring the kingdom of God to our hearts. In Luke 11, 22, he said the kingdom of God comes 
when one who is stronger comes and binds the ruler, the one who is ruling, who's all, all their goods are just safe until the strong man, stronger man comes in and binds them. I've been reading in Jeremiah, and you've got this story of, of Nebuchadnezzar laying siege to Jerusalem and building up these ramps. And for three years, Jerusalem was slowly starved to death until finally Nebuchadnezzar broke through the walls. His forces broke through the walls of Jerusalem and immediately set up government at the Davidic gate. And you see, this is what the kingdom of God does. It breaks down the walls of resistance and it sets up rulership in our hearts. It binds a strong man. The government that used to reign is bound and all their devices and all their power is absolutely ruined. And Jesus sets up the government of heaven. What is going on in heaven comes into our hearts, eternity in our hearts, the kingdom of God. So what we pray is thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for that rulership in our hearts, the kingdom of God right now in our hearts. When Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? Jesus answered in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Now. You see, one day, according to the Bible, Jesus is going to rule and reign on earth from Jerusalem. And there will be no need of the sun because Jesus will shine so brightly. And we who are alive and remain, who are on the earth, we will make pilgrimages to Jerusalem just to look at him and gaze on him and see his glory during the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And it will be absolutely amazing. But right now, that kingdom is in our hearts. You see, the messianic expectation for the Jews in Jesus' time was that the Messiah would come as a political leader and he would free Israel from the oppression of Rome. And that right then, Israel would become a nation again. Remember in Acts chapter 1, the disciples said to Jesus, you know, now that you're risen again, will you now set up, you know, will you give now national freedom to Israel? You know, is it right now? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has put in his own right hand, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You see, Jesus is saying right now, it's about an internal rulership. Jesus is starting with the heart and taking rulership of the heart. Because you see, in the Old Testament, what you have, you know, from Exodus, you know, all the way through to Malachi, is you have an outward theocracy you know, where, where God wanted to rule the people. But what happened is you've got this rebellion internally. You, you've got a, a son of David on the throne of Israel. But the people are committing idolatry. They're pouring out oblations to the queen of heaven. It's not internal. It's external. 
So when Jesus came, he came to rule internally from the inside out. And that's what he's doing first is setting up his rulership in our hearts. And when he sets up his rulership in our hearts, it changes everything. It changes our perspective in suffering. In fact, it, it, it changes everything about suffering. It brings fruitfulness to our lives. It brings deliverance. It changes our attitude. It changes our power. It changes whether or not we feel secure and our protection and comfort in this life. You see, what is taking place internally makes all the difference even now externally and our perspective on everything that happens to us. But how does the kingdom of God get set up in our hearts? Well, Jesus said narrow is the way, didn't he? It's narrow. And few there are that find it. So how does it start? It starts with repentance. Saying, my rulership hasn't worked and I want your rulership. You know what I find is the number one struggle? And it was interesting because I was talking to my son about this uh, a few months back. And he was talking to me about his own struggles. And I looked at him and I said, Brayden, I had those same struggles. And he just looked so wide-eyed like I never knew. <laughs> I said, do you think I've always been just this wonderful beacon of Christianity? I said, but I remember a time, 17, 18, 19 years old, struggling with the Lord, God's will or my will? God's will or my will? And I honestly thought my will was superior to God's will. My finite because I couldn't see everything else that was happening. My finite will was better. Going back to the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, when Jeremiah is saying, submit to the king of Babylon and everything will be great. These people are going, uh, 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 uh. That cannot be the voice of the Lord. You cannot truly be a prophet if you would tell us to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. But their view was finite. They didn't know that Nebuchadnezzar was being disturbed by dreams, that God was working in Nebuchadnezzar's life to give favor to the Jews. They had no idea that his number one guy was named Daniel and that he was sharing the reality of God and literally the fear of God with the most ferocious king in the world. And guess what? This king was trembling. They had no idea that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been thrown into the fiery furnace and walked with Jesus Christ. And that when Nebuchadnezzar saw that, his knees smote together. They couldn't see what God was doing. So when they were told the will of the Lord, they were like, I don't think so. They were resistant to it. And I can honestly say when I was 17 and 18 and 19, I struggled. It wasn't that I was always disobedient. But I would come to these places and go, well, Lord, you know, thank you for your advice. But I, I know how I want to do this. And I've watched each one of my children struggle with that too. And we still continue to struggle, don't we? My will, God's will. My will, God's will. But what is it to have the kingdom of God? It's to say, your will be done in my heart, 
on earth in my life as it is in heaven. Because I can't see everything, Lord, but your will is superior because you see everything. You know everything. And your intentions for me are the absolute best. Now, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus poses two questions to those he's speaking with. And he says to them, well, let me just say this. Part of the way a rabbi would teach in those days would be to ask questions. And why would they ask questions? Because they wanted to open the minds of their students to explore where their ideas originated from, to cause them to reason. You see, too often we simply accept false information and context, uh, concepts without seeing their irrationality or their ir- unreasonableness or their irrationality. We just accept them. And then somebody says, well, why are you doing that? I, I, I don't know. Why, why, do you, why, do you, why do you rinse your pasta before you, you know, put it? I don't know. I just saw someone do it, so I do that. Have you ever thought about, somebody says, why are you doing that? All of a sudden you start to think about, why am I doing this? Why do I do it this way? And it makes you think, where did that concept come from? Is this reasonable? And it makes you think. Think. Like, where did that come from? What was go- what's going on in my heart that I, I'm thinking this or I'm saying this? So Jesus is asking them two questions to make them to start thinking. And question one is, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Now, at that time, we're told that Pilate had killed some of the Galileans. There's a couple of different theories about who these Galileans were. But we know that there was an um, uprising that happened in Galilee when the money that was set aside for temple taxes was used to create a Roman aqueduct to bring water into uh, Jerusalem and different areas of Israel. And some of the Jews in Galilee protested and they had gone to Jerusalem to protest. And what Pilate did is he had men dressed up like Jews go into the assembly and just begin to uh, put to death arbitrarily some of those who were protesting. Others say that this was an incident that had to do with some Galileans who came to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and uh, Pilate's persecution was sudden, arbitrary, and unexpected. But this is the main point. Jesus points out that their suffering, their deaths, had nothing to do with their righteousness or their unrighteousness. Question two that Jesus posed, or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? You see, we want to think that those who die had it coming. Those who suffer had it coming. That, you know, and if we just don't do those things, we'll never suffer. We'll, we'll never go through hardship. But the Tower of Siloam was a citadel on the walls of Jerusalem. Not much is known about this incident, except for one day it just fell. And it could have been that it was just so old or shoddy construction. But those who were walking by it, those who were in it, good and innocent, 
unexpectedly died or were maimed. After both questions, Jesus declared, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Why? Because repentance makes all the difference. Repentance, again, is saying, my way is wrong. My rulership hasn't worked out. Your rulership is right. Repentance is confessing that our way is wrong and asking the kingdom of God, his rulership, to reign in our hearts and lives. This changing of the guard, so to speak, changes the outcome of suffering. When the kingdom of God rules, suffering becomes a tool in God's hands. A tool. It becomes a testimony. People say, oh, I see you suffering. You say, but God is comforting me. God is blessing me. So many times we're afraid to approach someone who's suffering. We're afraid to talk or to speak to them because we don't know what to say. But we're told that when you are persecuted for Christ's name, according to Peter, the spirit of grace and glory rests upon you. And now I know I have talked to people who are in the midst of suffering and they don't feel it. They're like, well, I'm feeling it for you. But they don't feel it because God is so ministering to them in their suffering. We had a, some friends who lost their baby boy at birth. And we had these other people who went down to the hospital to minister, minister to them. And the couples that had gone down fell apart. The husband had to leave his wife, go out to the waiting room, minister to these people and say, you know what? God's still on the throne. We're okay. We've just had a glorious time in there as we've given our child to God and to his glory. We've got the comfort of Christ. And he had to comfort these others that had come to comfort him. You see, it becomes a tool in God's hands. Uh, this particular incident, this, this woman's father, he was a lawyer for the a ACLU. He wasn't a Christian. He was so angry at her for getting married, for having a child, for not finishing college. And I mean, he just would call her up and berate her. He didn't want to be a grandpa either. You know, he, he felt too young. And when this child went to heaven, all of a sudden her father's heart became open for the first time to the gospel. He was tenderized as nothing else would have tenderized him. And now his grandchildren are his prized possession. It brings a testimony of God's comfort, God's help and deliverance. We have testimonies. You know, when you're talking about your life and you're telling people something, you want to tell them the testimony. Yes, I went through this, but this is how God brought me through. It's a testimony. There are lessons to be learned in suffering. When Christ is on the throne, suffering becomes a classroom to learn. Suffering becomes meaningful and infused with divine purpose. I know whenever I'm suffering, I'm like, I can't wait for heaven. I want heaven. I never want heaven as badly as I do when I'm, as I do when I'm suffering. You know, I get a little ache and pain, like in heaven, I won't have this. I'm so excited. And it makes me think about heaven. It's a place of victory, not victimization. 
It becomes a place of victory because we can overcome even in suffering. We become overcomers. We're not under it. We're over it. And we get an eternal reward in heaven. So that we get to heaven, we'll go, what's this for? Remember that headache? What headache? You know, remember when that person betrayed you? What betrayal? Remember when that person mocked you? What mocking? Well, you don't have to remember, but I do. And that's yours. Wow, a Nepresso. Thank you, God. Nepresso in heaven. I'm sure it's called Gabriel Presso. But everyone in life will suffer. But those with the kingdom of God in their lives will find meaning in suffering, comfort, promise, purpose, reward. Now next, we move on to fruitfulness. The only promise of fruitfulness is when the kingdom of heaven is in our hearts, when the kingdom of God is ruling. Jesus said in John chapter 15, without me, you can do nothing. And unless the branches abide in the vine, they can bear no fruit, no fruit, not a nothing, no fruit. So Jesus, in Luke 13, verses 6 through 9, after explaining the universality of suffering, shares a parable, and it's about a barren tree. Now, a sapling usually takes two years before it bears fruit. And this tree was one year past the age. It should have borne fruit, yet there was nothing. And the owner of the vineyard came three years in a row seeking fruit. And the keeper of the vineyard begs for one more year so he can dig around it and fertilize it. And then come and inspect it again after I've given it all I can. You see, the kingdom of God is what brings fruitfulness. When Jesus is allowed to do to the soil of our life and to the branches everything that is necessary. There can be no fruit unless the branch is feeding off the vine, as we already spoke about, John 15, 4 through 5. So this tree was fruitless until the keeper began to work on it. And the keeper said, if after doing everything that's possible to coax fruit from it, and it's still fruitless, then it can be removed. Fruit is a natural byproduct of the kingdom of God in our hearts. John 15, Jesus said, if my word abides in you, you will bear fruit. If you love one another, you will bear fruit. Jesus even talked in John chapter 15 about fruit, more fruit and much fruit. How? By abiding. What is abiding? Abiding is allowing Jesus rule in our heart. It's by holding on to him in every situation saying, Lord, what do you have for me? What do you have for me? And as we abide in Jesus, fruitfulness will come. Again, it's letting the keeper do all that he wants. Take off branches, prune, break up the soil, whatever is necessary. Jesus then in speak, 
we have this incident that happens on the Sabbath in the synagogue in Luke 13, 11 through 16 that shows us that the kingdom of God brings deliverance. As Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath, there's a woman who is bent over. Jesus immediately sees this woman bent over, calls her to himself, speaks to her, looses her, heals her, and immediately she's able to raise herself up. But Jesus saw a satanic connection between this woman's stooped condition. He saw a connection. So many are coming to church and still bent over, like this woman, 18 years. How many times had she come to that synagogue and left that synagogue still bent over because Satan had a foothold in her life? He was continuing to oppress her. Now, we're not, we're not told she's demon-possessed. We're not told he, he possessed her, but he oppressed her. He bent her over. He forced her down. She couldn't raise herself up. It says, in no way could she raise herself up. I have seen people come to church over and over again and leave the same way, bent over with unforgiveness, bent over with hatred, bent over with a critical spirit. You know, because those things are not easy to maintain. It is not easy to maintain hatred. You have to feed it. It's not easy to maintain a critical spirit because people are telling you all these wonderful things that are going on and you have to find the fault. It's not easy to keep feeding those things. And it bends us over. It's a heavy burden to bear. And you know, when you meet these people, I remember there was a man that we met years ago and he'd say, the way of God is hard. You know, yeah. If you're not abiding, it's hard because you're doing all the work. But if you're abiding, Jesus is doing all the work in you, through you, for you, with you, with you. So she is bent over. But when Jesus looses her from her infirmity, and notice he looses her. He looses her. He takes that thing off. He takes that rope that we can't see, that invisible rope that's been binding her, that's been holding her down. He takes it. He looses her. And immediately she is made straight. Immediately. It's off. It's gone. The weight is gone. This is what the kingdom of God does. It takes the weights off. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says, let us lay aside the weights and sin that so easily besets us. He's saying, let's get rid of those weights and those sins that are keeping us bent over so we can't run. Like we're meant to run in this race. Get them off. Jesus wants to loose us. When he's on the throne of our hearts, he is commanding love. And he is loosing us from hatred. 
He is commanding grace. And he is loosing us from criticism and competition. When Jesus is on the throne of our hearts, he is loosing approval and getting rid of all those things where we would disqualify each other. When Jesus is on the throne of our hearts, you know what he's doing? He's saying, see that person? They're more valuable to me than a sparrow. See that person? They might be as obnoxious as a raven, but I'm feeding them. And I love them. And I care about them. See that person? I am beautifying this place with that person like a lily of the field. You see, Jesus puts great value on people. And when we have him on the throne, guess what? People become important. We don't want causes against people. You know what happens when Jesus is on the throne? We're warring against the devil and his kingdom. But we're not shooting our own. And we're not hurting our own. We know who our enemy is when Jesus is ruling in our hearts. So there is deliverance. You know, those who are not free from hatred, those who are not free from enmity, those who are not free from a critical spirit or grumpiness, let me say this. You need to give Jesus all the power of your heart. You need to say, Jesus, be enthroned on my heart. Be worshiped in my heart. Now, the synagogue ruler is irate, and he begins to shout at the people that they could come for healings from Sunday to Friday. But Saturday, the synagogue is closed for healings. And again, do you see what's happening? Jesus calls him on this and says, you hypocrite, you would loose your animal on the Sabbath so he could get water, but you would not, you would not allow this woman to be loosed on the synagogue to receive the living water, to receive the deliverance of God. Again, he was devaluating the people of God. And putting more value on on animals. When Jesus is on the throne, we value. It's not that we devalue animals like, no, you don't get any water anymore because Jesus is on the throne of the heart. No, we value God's creation. And we, we value, we value people. We value people. They were created by God. They were intricately made by God. The kingdom of God makes all the difference in attitude. We look and we see that the ruler of the synagogue is indignant. And Jesus points to the hypocrisy of his attitude. And eventually, Jesus' adversaries, verse 17, are put to shame. This is the ultimate outcome of those who refuse the kingdom of God to rule in their hearts. It will be, they'll be indignant. You see, this is, this is something that you can measure whether Jesus is on your heart. Years ago, one of my children was acting up, and I don't want to lay blame, but, you know, they were like, I, I am a Christian. You know how they do. And so I took them to Galatians chapter 5. And I said, okay, 
we're going to see which category you find yourself in. You know, and I read them, you know, the works of the flesh are these, you know, anger, enmity, you know, all these things. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, long-suffering, self-control. You know, and I'm reading the two lists, and I remember looking at this child in big tears. And they said, Mom, help me. I'm in the wrong camp. (laughs) That's so cool. Mom, help me. I'm in the wrong camp. I'm like, well, let's get out of this one. And let's get in the fruit of the spirit camp. You know, we can look at the, our attitude and say, you know what? If Jesus is ruling, there should be joy. There should be love. The fruit of the spirit should be flowing. But when there's indignation, when there's hypocrisy, when there's shame, Jesus is not getting enough of our hearts. And we read that the others looking on, they rejoiced. You see, they received the kingdom of God. And because they received the kingdom of God, they rejoiced. And then what? They glorified God. This is a sign that Jesus is on the throne. Joy and glorifying God. When we see something, we're like, praise the Lord. We're so happy. You know, somebody tells me, you know, I... I had this really sweet friend, and she's like, Cheryl, God's been so good. He gave me a brand new computer. I got to rejoice with her. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Not like, why did she get a new computer? Mine's eight years old. I teach the Bible. I'm writing out your lessons, Lord. What about me? But instead, I was like, hallelujah. I am so glad that God is showing you how much he loves you. And sent you a really expensive, wonderful message of how much he loves you. That's what we do. We rejoice. We don't qualify. We don't disqualify. We're not angry. We're not competitive. We are rejoicing and glorifying God. Paul talked about when he met the disciples. That they saw him recognize God's work in his life. And they glorify God. Shouldn't we do that? Shouldn't we look for the work of God, for the rulership of Jesus Christ on each other's hearts, and then glorify God? You know what? We're a minority. We believers. Shouldn't we get excited when we meet another Christian? That was something that was wonderful about living in England. Because you knew. You knew that other believers were few and far between. And when somebody disclosed that they were a Christian, I mean, you almost screamed with joy. It was like, yes. I remember going to the American muffin shop. That was kind of fun. And meeting these other believers and getting so excited that there were other believers in England. You see, that's what happens. We begin to glorify God, that he is working in this world. That Jesus come, we're not qualifying, we're not disqualifying. We're not indignant, like, hmm, how dare that happen on a Saturday? No, we're not qualifying, we're not disqualifying. We are rejoicing and glorifying God. Now, the kingdom of God makes a difference in the power of our lives. The, the, the di- dynamic power. And in Luke 13, 8 through 21, Jesus gives two examples. One is a mustard seed and one is a little bit of leaven. 
Now, there are those who look at the Bible because their methodology is wrong, right? And have you ever noticed how Jesus always is healing differently? Because we're so quick to have a methodology. Is there a recipe for that? You know, how did you do that? And we want to give glory to the methodology instead of Jesus. So Jesus always did things differently. There are those who want to assign um, constancy to certain things. Like they want to say, leaven is always bad. Well, in the Bible, leaven is not always bad. Sorry. In fact, in Leviticus 23, verse 17, the sacrifice at Pentecost was to have leaven. So you, you finish, you have the unleavened bread because it spoke about Jesus. And then you had the Passover. And then 50 days later, you had Pentecost in which the sacrifice was offered with leaven. They were to make this bread with leaven. So to say leaven is always bad is not right. Jesus said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, right? That's the leaven we don't want. Now, I don't know how many of you have used uh, leaven or made your own starter for sourdough bread. I did this once. I made a wonderful sourdough starter. Takes three weeks, right? I made mine with yogurt, whole wheat flour. I was feeding it. And we were living in England and I made sourdough whole wheat pancakes. I made sourdough bread. I made sourdough bagels. I made sourdough... uh, English muffins, of course, but you know, everything was sourdough with my own starter. And again, that one came from yogurt. There's another one you can make with grapes. There's another one you can do with yeast, but I made this starter and I was asked to speak um, at a conference down in San Diego, left my starter. Now, Brian had been eating all that sourdough stuff, right? So I call him up and I said, how are things going? He goes, oh, Cheryl, there was this gross thing that was kind of bubbling up in the refrigerator and I threw it out. It was so sick. I was like, Brian, that was my starter. I don't think so. This thing was ugly, Cheryl. I mean, it was gross. No, that's a starter. Sometimes starters are ugly and gross, but they work. But leaven's not always a bad thing in the Bible. Mustard seed. Now, mustard seed we know is not bad because Jesus says have faith like a mustard seed. But, you know, we're like all those birds were in there. Yeah, and Jesus just told us about ravens and sparrows. They're great birds. Let me say this. We get a lot of different birds in the church, don't we? But we all find shade under the branches of faith. So this mustard seed, and and just think, he says at one point it's the smallest of all seeds. It was so tiny, but if it was put in the ground, If we allowed it into our heart, if we brought Jesus in to rule in our hearts, he would take over the whole garden, take over the whole heart and be greater than the herbs. And that's what we need to do is to bring Jesus into our heart like a a little mustard seed. It goes in small. I was walking at uh, Talbert Nature Reserve and I was going through a trial and I was talking to the Lord about it. And what I noticed is that the Fields were covered. They literally, the whole park was taken over, you know, on the nature trail by the mustard plant, those yellow flowers, everything. I mean, it was just like it had taken the whole thing over. And I felt the Lord say to me, Cheryl, just believe. Just believe because this is the potential. I can take over everything. Just believe. 
And I remember it was so awesome. The next week I went like, I can't wait to see my, my little illustration. Got there, they mowed the whole thing down. And yet, you know what? Those mustard plants were already beginning to sprout back up along the edges of the path. And I just thought, you know what? It can't be cut down. It will come right back. And Jesus said it can go in as the tiniest of all seeds, but it will take over and become this dynamic tree that will give shade and comfort to each other. Isn't that how faith is? It goes in so small. We believe the Lord. We believe the Lord. And we give him, because we believe him, we give him more rulership of our heart. The more rulership we give, like Psalm 1, you know, as we meditate day and night in his word, because we believe in him, we become like this tree planted by the living water that brings forth fruit in its season and our leaf doesn't wither. And you know what? We give shade. We give comfort, a place to nest for others. I think how many people have been encouraged by my father's stories of faith. My dad said to me one time, he goes, you know that guy on the radio? He was one of the Calvary pastors. He's using all my stories of faith and saying they're his. Now, how many kids get a bike on their three-year-old birthday and you don't have the same experience as me? <laughs> he was just, and this pastor literally was just ascribing all of my dad's stories to himself. It was hilarious. And my dad's like, those are my stories. That happened to me. But this is what I'm saying. How many of us have been blessed by those stories of faith? How many of us have found comfort and refreshment, shade, placement, security because of those stories of faith? God wants to give you stories of faith, just like that pastor, his own stories of faith, so that other birds can come and, and, and rest. And then a little bit of leaven. Now, we're talking about a tiny bit of leaven. And when it says the three measures of meal, it's talking about 50 pounds of flour. All of that is affected by a little bit of leaven. That's how effective the kingdom of God is. When we allow the kingdom of God to rule on our hearts, everything gets affected. We can, we can affect our whole neighborhood. We can affect our whole family. I think about Mary when she poured out the ointment on Jesus' feet, that worship, making Jesus king, and we're told the fragrance filled the house. It is so effective. The kingdom of God comes through faith, and faith is simply choosing to believe what is true, God's revelation through his word, and that bit of faith grows dynamically and divinely. The garden is dynamically changed by one small seed and 50 pounds of flour would be flat were it not for that one bit of leaven. And then the kingdom of God, Christ's rule in our lives is the only guarantee for eternal life. Luke 13, 22 through 30. Many wanted to claim Jesus as a prophet, their prophet even. This is our prophet, as they claimed John the Baptist as their prophet. They wanted to claim him as a healer, a friend, an example, even a kinsman. But this would do nothing for them. It had to be Jesus on their heart. 
Jesus ruling their hearts to have part in the ultimate kingdom of God. So Jesus said that entrance into the kingdom of God comes through repentance. Again, repentance. I cannot rule myself and have the kingdom of God ruling. They are mutually exclusive. Either Cheryl rules or Jesus rules. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's the only way into the kingdom of God. And he's the only way the kingdom of God comes into our hearts. Now, there are those, Jesus said, who will come knocking on the door later after the door is closed and say, but you ate in our presence. You taught in our streets. Like this distance, distant association. We saw you. We heard you. We observed you. But we never, we've never had a relationship with you. We never asked you to come into our hearts and to rule our lives. And Jesus will say, said, you will be shut out. And he will say, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, because those who do not have Jesus ruling their hearts will continue in iniquity. Placement and the ultimate kingdom of God. That's what having Jesus rule now in our hearts, now in our hearts, guarantees. You know, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he should die, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Why? Because eternity, Christ's eternal kingdom comes and rules in our heart. And then what happens? Again, the internal becomes the external experience when we go to heaven. And we will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets. Have you thought about who you want to see when you get to heaven? Who you're going to look for when you get to heaven? I cannot wait to meet Ruth and, and Esther and these people I have read about. I was sitting on a plane and I saw this young man and he had this huge book. And I said, what is that huge book? And he says, well, I'm a rabbinical student. I'm Jewish and I'm in rabbinical school. And I said, well, what are you studying? And he said, well, right now I'm studying Abraham. I said, Abraham? And I went on just to, you know, talk about Abraham. I mean, I grew up with Abraham, right? Those are my Bible stories. I, I, I feel like, you know how it is. As we study the Bible, we feel like these are our friends. I know Abraham. He's my neighbor. And I begin to talk about Abraham and the promises. I will bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you. How he was an example of faith, even though he gave away his wife twice, which kind of gets on my nerves. And as we begin to talk, and he's talking, we're having this great conversation. He said, I have never met a Gentile who knew more about Abraham than I do. I said, well, hello. <laughs> and I said, are you all right with talking about Jesus? I said, because I understand if you're not. But Jesus is Jewish after all, and he's become my savior. And he said, yeah, I'm okay with it. And I said, okay, great. Because I want to tell you something that Jesus said. I said, Jesus promised Gentiles who believed in him that we would sit down and eat bread with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. And I said, do you know that's my hope? And I know I'll recognize Abraham because I will know even as I'm known. And I said, and I can't wait to sit down and eat bread with Abraham, 
Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets. And he just said, I've never heard anything like that. And I said, yeah, they said about Jesus, no one ever spoke like this man. It was, it was so incredible. I was sitting with a friend and, you know, we got off the plane. She said, I was praying for you so much. I could feel the presence of the Lord. I mean, it was just one of those amazing things that God does. Part, we are part of a great international assembly. Those of us who have found this narrow road. In Revelation 5, 9, it says, Our song that we'll be singing is, You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus said they will come from the east and the west and the north and the south. And they will come and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is our guarantee to glory. This is our guarantee to prominence. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Those in this life considered the least. Those who have given up all to follow Jesus Christ who the world just goes, why? Why? And you are what? A missionary? When we were in England, we were getting um, a car. We were buying it and we had gone to a car dealership. And they were joking about our passports because um, our visas because on it, it said missionary. And the one man looked at him and said, they're missionaries. And I saw this. Brian was preoccupied as usual. And I heard this discussion and I got so upset. And I looked at this man. I said, you go to church anywhere? He goes, what, what, what? I said, do you go to church? He goes, church? Um, Not in a while. I said, do you believe in Jesus? Uh, Well, you know, sort of. Well, my mother did. And I said, then I'm here for you. I've come to England from beautiful California where it rarely rains to get you to church to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's why I'm here. And he goes, oh, right, right. I said, so when are you going to come to church? Oh, well, you know, what's the address? I wrote it down. I said, I want to see you next Sunday. And he goes, right, right, sure, sure. You know, and Brian's like, wow, Cheryl, you're so dynamic. I've never seen this side of you. I'm like, I'll tell you later. But the least, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The ambitious the media, those so-called men of science, they'll be the last. And the first will be those. As it says in James, has not God chosen the poor in this life to be rich in faith? Oh, how things will be different. Finally, the kingdom of God gives us protection and comfort. Luke thirteen thirty-one through 35. Bad things do happen to good people. Persecution, hardship, attack, natural disaster happens everywhere to everyone at some time. But those who have the kingdom of God ruling in their hearts, they stay on mission, unswayed by threats. When they came to Jesus and said, Herod is looking for you. If I could paraphrase, I would say, so what? I'm staying on mission. He's not my sovereign. I answered 
to the one on the heavenly throne who sees all, who brought the world into existence with the word of his power. That's my sovereign. Stayed on mission, unswayed by threats, undeterred from the right course. Those who have the kingdom of God ruling in their hearts know the comfort of being brought under the protection of Jesus Christ. Just like any place you travel, you can go to the embassy as an American. And you can even be in Iraq, but you can run into that and be under the protection of the United States. So, Jesus, we are under his protection when we're in the kingdom of God. Jesus did not protect himself. He did not flee. He did not hide. He said, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today. And tomorrow on the third day, I will be perfected. Jesus had not come to protect his own life, but to protect us. To take the wrath of God, to take the wrath, the fire, the flame for us. That he might comfort us. Jesus' orders came from the word of God, from the one who sat on the throne. His actions were not dictated by what Herod wanted or threatened, but by the word of God. As he says in 33, nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. It's not scriptural. It's not the way it's going to happen. Jesus then lamented over Jerusalem. Because of the lost potential for protection and rest, as he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Why did they do that? Because they wanted self-rulership. Because they didn't want God ruling them. They wanted to claim God. They wanted all God's blessings, but they didn't want God's rule. They didn't want to obey God. Jesus said, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. When danger comes, it's said that a hen begins to turn circles and begins to give this special, like, clicking, which I can't do because I'm not a hen, to the chicks, and then begins to spread out its arms, flapping them for the chicks to come under So God, as we read in the Old Testament, often encircled Israel, sending them prophets to call out to them his word. And he said, all day I have stretched out my arms to a disobedient people. God had encircled, called out to them, stretched out his arms. And Jesus, no doubt, was rehearsing the history of Jerusalem. Their past destruction and their future destruction because even though he was there with outstretched arms in their midst, the kingdom of God right there, they wouldn't come under those sovereign arms and received that protection. And Jesus said their houses would become desolate. Same thing that Lamentations 1 says about what happened when Babylon came in. And then they would not see Jesus again until they were willing and ready to put him on the throne of their hearts. Until they were ready to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until you are ready to receive the kingdom of God as the absolute monarchy in your heart. Until then, suffering will not have any purpose, meaning comfort or promise. Instead of making you better, it will make you bitter. 
there can be no fruitfulness unless the kingdom of God is reigning. There can be no power. You will always be frustrated by your inability to influence or change. There's no promise of deliverance from the power of Satan. The strong man of this world will continue to rule, bind, and oppress, and bend you over. Your attitude will reflect defeat, anger, indignation, rather than rejoicing. There will be no dynamic power without the kingdom of God reigning. Your garden will be unaffected. Your flower will never rise. There will be no future security or promise reigning in your heart. No protection or comfort when life brings persecution, suffering, attack, and natural disaster. But if, if you give Jesus more rulership, if you give him more sovereignty, when things happen and you throw your arms up to God and say, God, I give you this situation, I am yours. Take your rightful place in my heart, in my mind. Rule over me then you can be assured, even in suffering, that God will bring his purpose, his fruitfulness, his deliverance, his joy and glory, his dynamic power, his eternal comfort, and his protection to bear right now over your heart, over your life, over all that happens to you. Let Jesus reign today in your heart. Surrender the sovereignty of your heart to Jesus that you might know even right now on earth the glory of being a citizen in heaven. That you might claim my citizenship is in heaven where I'm going to eat bread. Yes, carbohydrates. Yes, maybe gluten. Maybe the bread in heaven is gluten-free. Who knows? In heaven. But I'm going to sit down and eat bread with Abraham. Or maybe I'm just so perfected I can do all the gluten I want. I'm going to sit down and eat bread with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Surrender completely to the rulership of your sovereign. Let's stand up. I want you to close your eyes. And I want to just take a moment. Some of you are saying, Cheryl, I want to trust God. I want to give him complete rulership of my heart but I'm really scared of bad things, that he might allow bad things in my life. I don't completely trust him to reign. I don't know exactly what he's going to do or what he's going to allow. And you still have control of your life. All right? Others of you, you are bent over because you haven't allowed Jesus to rule. And you've you've got a critical spirit. In fact, you don't really like people. You don't value people. And you're not really excited when other people get loosed and you can't take joy in what the Lord is doing and you're just bent over. Others of you, you're not experiencing that dynamic power of God making you a tree, of God um, using your life to have an effect on those around you. It's as simple as just give God more. It's not like you have to strive or try to be anything more. Just give God more. If that's you, keep your eyes closed and raise your hand. Okay, I knew I wasn't alone. Lord, here's here's your girls. You love them so much. 
I pray that you will break down every wall of resistance in their hearts, that you might come and reign in the midst of them right now, Lord Jesus, showing them how great your rulership is, showing how you transform everything when you're allowed to rule. Lord, touch your daughters, sing over them. Lord, such a romantic and beautiful song that, they, that the walls just come crumbling down and they enthrone you at the center of their lives with joy. Bless your daughters, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.